Welcome, everyone. My name is Dr. Benjamin Galen. I go by Jamie. I'm the editor-in-chief of Focus Journal, and I'm so excited tonight um, or today, whenever you're listening, um, because we have uh, two authors, co-authors from uh, one of the research studies in the April issue of Focus Journal. Uh, the article is The Impact of Point-of-Care Ultrasound in Medical Decision-Making, Informing the Development of an Internal Medicine Global Health Focus Curriculum. And we have uh, Michelle Fleschner here and Stephen Fox, uh, as well as a special treat, we have Gordy Johnson, our Pocus um, uh, Journal uh, Global Health section editor on um, as well for tonight's podcast. And I'm so excited uh, to hear from them. I'm going to stop talking, but I'm going to, I'm first going to ask them uh, to introduce themselves. Uh, Michelle, uh, Dr. Fleschner, we'll start with you. We'll just uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and um, tell us also, as Gordy would say, you know, what was your first kiss uh, with POCUS, when did you find um, and fall in love with ultrasound? Sure. Thank you for having us. So I'm Michelle. I am currently talking to you from Denver, Colorado. I'm a hospitalist at University of Colorado and shoots. I do a lot of POCUS development and POCUS teaching. Um, my interest in POCUS started in Pittsburgh, where I went to residency with Steve and did the global health track, spent about five months total in Malawi and learned how useful POCUS was there. And that's where I really kind of developed my skills. Um, and I think that's where my first kiss with POCUS was, was like the first day in Malawi on the wards, we saw like three different pericardial fusions that were all to TB and all were had fibrinous stranding and it was just really crazy and really, really cool. Um, so that's kind of my POCUS background. Other things about me, I like to hike, I have two cats. Um, really like coffee, really like wine. Fun facts. Amazing. Uh, I can't wait to hear more uh, about the global health track. I want to remember to ask you about that. Um, Steve, tell us about you. Sure. So, um, I grew up in Philadelphia, um, then went to Pittsburgh for residency and I'm currently in Cleveland and, um, I'm in my third year of pulmonary critical care fellowship. Um, after finishing here, I'm going to Birmingham, Alabama, the university of Alabama, Birmingham. So, um, and before I, I uh, mentioned about my, my POCUS first kiss, you know, I, I have to say I'm a big fan of actually this podcast and, and the POCUS journal. And uh, so I am, I'm honored to be here. And um, anyway, I don't, you know, because I'm listening to the other podcast episodes and, and hearing about POCUS first uh, kisses, I, you know, I don't really, um, I don't really have one, but uh, I, I can tell you kind of a little bit of my story and how I got so interested in that. And to be honest, it was, it was like from day one. So we had a, actually as part of this global health track, we had a one week um, introduction to focus, which was during my intern year, it was like October of my intern year. And I think it was like the first day of that, I just immediately fell in love with it. And um, basically after doing that one week course, I kind of just um, used uh, ultrasound in an educational scanning fashion all the time. You know, whenever I had the opportunity, um, every, every rotation, I kind of just found a machine and, you know, did educational scanning, whatever context I could and clinical scanning, if I had appropriate supervision and you know, I kind of just at that point made a decision to make it a big part of my practice and have been that way ever since. Um, so anyway, uh, but the other thing I think that that um, was a big uh, thing for me that uh, was a big selling point for focus was just ultrasound IVs, you know, especially as an intern. Um, you know, when you have a patient who's kind of uh, care is being limited by lack of IV access and lack of ability to do blood draws, and you can go and use ultrasound and uh, somehow do it, you know, it's kind of like a magical tool to help the care of your patient and uh, anyway, the rest was history. 
Amazing. So great to, to hear your uh, story. Gordy, tell us about you and, and your, um, I guess, your first kiss since you coined the phrase. Yeah, yeah. So um, I'm Gordy Johnson. I'm a hospitalist here in Portland, Oregon. I work for Legacy Health System and I'm the director of POCUS here. We have six hospitals and now two residencies. Um, but I've done a lot of global health over the years. Uh, first starting in India, I did some of my medical school training over there and then on to Haiti and Africa. And lately I've been going to find my ancestral roots in teaching focus in Norway, which has been really uh, exciting. I like learning languages. I've learned Hindi and a little bit of Creole and now I'm working on Norwegian. And uh, I like to surf and play guitar and be in the outdoors like a lot of people in the Pacific Northwest. And I've been working for International Medical Corps part-time uh, as well. So my first kiss, I think, was when I was rounding with the residents and we were trying focus kind of on our own, didn't have any real formal training and we had a heart failure patient. And this is a common one you'll hear is we put the probe on it. It wasn't my patient, but lo and behold, there was a huge pericardial effusion. So we called the team that was caring for the patient, obviously stopped the Lasix. And that's when I decided to go and do a, a fellowship in point of care ultrasound and really um, pick up the skill. Amazing. It's really inspiring to hear, um, you know, especially with the global health work that you all have done. It's um, really impressive. And I think this article, um, you know, highlights some um, really important work that you've done uh, in, in uh, internal medicine and education and, and overlap with global health. Uh, one question I had to start out, um, you know, for Michelle and Steve, I'm really curious, uh, especially for the you know, global health listeners, what, what existing um, curriculum there was uh, in that global health track that in your residency in internal medicine, because I think that's, the, that's such a novel thing to have. And then, you know, what was the gap that, um, I, you know, prompted you to, you know, in innovate in this way with this curriculum and also evaluate it? Yeah, so I think, um, I think both of us chose UPMC as a residency because of the global health track. I'm speaking for Steve too, but I think that was a big factor and why both that's of us true. were there. Um, and it was unique in that we got to spend four months abroad, which is more than average. Um, and they had a POCUS curriculum already in place. And so what existed um, and what I believe still exists is a week long, like Steve was talking about, um, a week long intensive POCUS course. Um, so we each had like a, a month of global health elective. And then within that month, there was a week long course of hands-on scanning um, with some of the critical care pulmonary critical care faculty. So hands-on scanning, um, really, really just a lot of scanning um, and some lectures and things like that. Um, so that was really the intro um, and where we kind of got comfortable-ish scanning. As you all know, a week of scanning um, can quickly lead to then forgetting how to scan um, shortly thereafter. So um, what ended up happening with a lot of us um, and me in Malawi specifically as we got there, had a lot of basic skills, but then we're seeing all of this crazy stuff and not really knowing like what to do with it um, or what we were seeing. And so the gap that we were trying to fill was being able to develop some kind of remote longitudinal curriculum to be able to um, send our images back to the States, get feedback, A, for our own learning, and also because we were kind of independently caring for patients and POCUS was such an important part of caring for them. Um, and really we, we were, didn't have much supervision there. So trying to kind of create that structure for our learning and for our patient care um, to be able to develop our skills of interpreting and clinical integration. Got it. And one question um, I want to let mm -hmm. Steve answer also, but the, the faculty that we're teaching, you know, they, are they global health faculty or are they um, teaching basic focus that then the global health, um, you know, 
learners go on to use? I mean, are they are they aware of global health applications like you know some of the the TB exam, like the FASH exam? Is that something that they were familiar with, or you sort of adapt that to your own application? A little bit of both. Um, they were all part of Palm Critical Care. One of them, though, had spent like a year in Malawi, uh, not Malawi, Rwanda. And so had a lot of global health knowledge and a lot of knowledge as to how to um, incorporate POCUS, but they didn't, they weren't part of the global health faculty in the sites that we were going to as residents. Got it. And then by way of background, um, Steve, you also, you know, you found the, uh, the POCUS curriculum and the global health to be a great start, but that, you know, that you wanted to take it to kind of the next level and really evaluate the it's sort of an, a novel study. I mean, I think you say in the article there, you know, really hasn't been other um, studies that evaluate um, ultrasound applications um, in IM-based um, curriculum in, you know, in uh, low and middle income countries. So um, you guys came together to collaborate on this in, in your time while you were there or in advance, or how did that come about, the, the idea to the curriculum and the study? I think it was, it was kind of um, as, as it was ongoing. I think a big part of it, um, kind of as Michelle mentioned, was, is we were trying to improve the system that we had. You know, there was, we were learning ultrasound, um, but of course, uh, needing a continuing feedback system, you know, to continue to, to improve our ultrasound skills and make sure we were doing it right. So a, a big part of this, um, I think, was a, a motivation to do it better and to do it the right way, um, which I guess goes along with kind of focus quality assurance in general. But, you know, focus quality assurance is, is challenging enough um, within the same institution with a software system, you know, it's, you can imagine it's even more challenging um, across the globe with uh, especially you know we don't we didn't have any specific uh, method for doing QA so that was a big part of it actually was was um, developing the system to do that and, and we didn't have a lot of uh, resources to do that in terms of uh, money or um, uh, you know dedicated faculty time these types of things so it kind of was a sort of a, a grassroots effort um, on our part to to develop this system using like open source um, technology and, and then by doing that we were able to um, keep track of everything. A, a big part of it too was um, kind of a, a building of the community of people because one, it was it was within the, the global health um, track residents, you know, the people who are doing the scanning to kind of um, be interested in using the system and see the benefit of it. Part of it was the community of, of the people who'd be doing the reviews, you know, and this, this is all volunteer. And so it was um, people who, uh, you know, were believed in the mission and wanted to be a part of it. Um, so, so then there were a group of people who review the images and provide feedback. So anyway, um, I think through all of that, we were able to develop this system where um, people can have their images reviewed um, and, and have feedback to improve them going forward. And, and then you know, through that also came the, the research possibility, which I guess is another interesting point is how, how having a QA system ties into research aspects. You know, if you have a QA system set up and you can answer a lot of um, useful questions. So basically we kind of were able to um, reach all of those goals through this. Hi, this is Gordy Johnson. So I, I have to be honest, when I saw the title of this come across and some of the information, I, I think I texted uh, Jamie right away and I said, this is exactly what we need and was really excited about this paper. So I'm really proud of you guys. I wanna start yeah. jumping results if that's okay. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what you found here with uh, how many, what percentage of the time it changed management and changed your diagnosis? Uh, Michelle, can you start? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we, we analyzed that in a few different ways. Um, I'll start with just overall. So we looked at kind of all of this ultrasounds that we did. Um, and just as a brief background on the methods, basically what this entailed was at two different sites, we um, 
we had all of the learners at the site submit all of the ultrasounds um, that they did and document um, the kind of their one-liner, whether or not they felt it answered the clinical question, changed diagnosis or changed management. Um, and so we had a total of 237 scans. 92% um, of those answered the clinical question. Um, and that was kind of a subjective answer as to whether or not it, we felt it helped us clinically. 41% um, of them changed diagnosis and 41% of them changed management. Um, and that was kind of over all of the of the scans. And then we tried to split that up more in terms of clinical question. Um, and one of the things that we learned throughout the study is we had a lot of different clinical questions, what probably that was one of our limitations. I think it would have been a little bit easier to pre-identify like specific clinical questions to analyze. So I think it would be more useful for me to just go through the ones that we deemed kind of highest yield. Um, but within those, the ones we deemed highest yield were finding fluid, which included pericardial effusion, um, pleural effusion ascites. And within that, um, so about, so hundred percent of those answered the clinical question. Um, and then about 60% of those changed diagnosis and like 65% changed management. Um, so that was really our, what we felt was the highest yield application of POCUS. And I think um, it just anecdotally, a lot of us who use POCUS a lot would probably agree that finding fluid is one of the most high yield applications um, pretty much in all settings. Um, so then the other- yeah. I really like the way you uh, sort of define it so, spe so specifically, but also as a general application because uh, over physical exam, you know, which is I think a very enriching experience to engage in you know, physical exam in global health settings, I, I'm, aware, I'm told, um, but, but that finding fluid by ultrasound is a confirmatory uh, augmented physical exam in ultrasound wins. Um, let me ask you, this is also figure three in the article for those listening mm -hmm. along. Um, I wondered if you had an example um, of just, just uh, of these categories about uh, something that, that you can imagine one of the survey respondents would answer, uh, that, that something answered a clinical question as opposed to changing a di diagnosis or management. Like um, there was a clinical question that, that didn't, um, you know, change diagnosis. Maybe they thought that they, you know, that ascites was present and they uh, found ascites on ultrasound, so it answered the clinical question or confirmed it, but didn't change the diagnosis or management. Is, is there another example, um, just kind of the clinical setting? Because I think it, those that haven't yeah. traveled to these settings may not know exactly some of those distinctions. Yeah, I think that's a really good example. I mean, sometimes they could get chest x-ray. So if you saw a huge pleural effusion that you knew was there, um, although arguably it still may change your management because you may be doing um, an ultrasound guided thoracentesis instead of a non-ultrasound guided thoracentesis. Another example would be um, of something that didn't would be patient with like very clear heart failure, clinical syndrome of heart failure. Um, their volume overloaded, they have pulmonary edema. You look at their heart, it isn't functioning well, but you already knew they had heart failure and you're already treating them for heart failure. So that might not change your diagnosis or management, but it would answer your clinical question. Does that answer? Got it. Yeah, that's really helpful. Thanks. Um, an interesting aspect about this um, to me too is uh, to me the answer, whether or not it answers the clinical question is sort of a marker of um, can you get the images you need and the interpretation that, that you need? Um, whereas the change diagnosis, change management is more on the clinical integration side of, you know, does it actually affect what you're going to do? Um, and, and I suppose, you know, if it, if it answers the question, but it doesn't necessarily change diagnosis or management, it often is still helpful, you know, in confirming the diagnosis. Um, but then, so that's why I guess it was useful to have those as separate points. Right. And in a resource limited setting, the, um, you know, access to other imaging modalities, I imagine is, is sort of resource limited and also, um, requires travel or transport or cost. Um, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. 
Um, so I, I interrupted you, Michelle, as you were starting to walk us no, through okay. um, more about figure three um, with the sort of utility of the different um, applications. Um, were these pre-specified, like the, the um, abdominal TB exam, um, LV function, and, and then the lung exam, or these were just based on what the users were doing? This is, this is the, um, the content that was evaluated. The latter. Okay. Yeah. They were not pre-specified. Um, and if you go to table three, you can see that there's a lot of different clinical questions that we quickly learn. And, and part of this actually, um, that was really interesting and useful for us, I think, as we went on was just to learn what an, what a reasonable POCUS question is. Um, and mo more often the ones that really helped and were able to answer our clinical question were the more binary POCUS questions, which I think we've all kind of talked about in the POCUS community a little. So for example, um, what is the qualitative LV function is a little more, not binary, but it's discrete. Is there evidence of abdominal TB? Is there fluid in the space? But then ones that were a little more vague, like sometimes people would do evaluation for malignancy, which as you can imagine is incredibly vague. Um, so things like that were the ones that were a little bit more um, challenging and probably should have been predefined um, more in advance. So we kind of picked the ones that were used more commonly and were um, concordant with, um, yeah, that were just used more commonly. I think that's so helpful to have, um, you know, in table three, if you were looking as a, as a global health program that was starting to invest in, in POCUS curriculum or uh, think about what, what applications could be used, um, so knowing uh, from your study what 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 the most common you know uses were, you could help tailor you know your curriculum before um, traveling. So you might, I mean, I might think, for instance, that like in in the hospital wards of the U.S., that like bladder and Foley, you know, would be a very common application for for us maybe. But um, in the in this case, it was very low level of utilization. Um, so just for example, I think looking at that table. Um, a lot of readers may help to define their goals for their for a budding curriculum or make choices about what um, you know would be a priority for training you know in the global health setting. Totally. Can I jump in, Jamie, for a second? Absolutely, Gordy. I was about to ask you what your take was on some of these applications. <laughs> well, I mean, for me, I'm taking a lot of the messages from this paper home. I'll be honest. I mean, the finding the fluid thing was brilliant and. We just got back from Society Hospital Medicine uh, meeting together in a little debate about, you know, credentialing, comprehensive credentials versus more of a stepwise or two-level approach. And I, I just think this find the fluid thing is brilliant. And I'm not, I'm not just saying that. I, I really think this was was great. And it's, you know, there's a lot of people, and I've realized with a lot of our partners that aren't necessarily going to do POCUS, but I think we can teach everyone to find ascites in the abdomen. And again, I love the simplicity. It can be as simple as present or not, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, of course the FASH is, is gonna be pretty unique to the, the resource limited global health setting. But um, Michelle, you also alluded to things um, that you didn't put a part of this, but you think of the future you might, uh, which I believe was um, hydronephrosis and DVT. Do you wanna comment on that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So I think those are two um, applications of POCUS that are thought of as kind of ease. One of the things we talk about is like ease of learning. So can this be taught reliably to a novice learner who could then do them well? Cardiac is probably less something like that. Gallbladder is less like that, but DVT and hydronephrosis are two applications that are pretty easy to learn um, and binary as well, kind of like what I've been talking about. Um, the reason that we, we just didn't have a high prevalence of that clinical question, um, at least in Malawi, and I'll let Steve comment a little more on Guiana. Um, there really wasn't um, 
availability of anticoagulation in Malawi. So that was a little bit of a challenge. Um, and we just didn't see clots the same in the same way that you, we do here. So we really rarely actually did those scans. And so that's why we didn't include them. Um, and same with hydronephrosis. I think we only had like four scans where we were actually evaluating for hydronephrosis. Um, but, but I do think, um, as we talked about in the paper, a lot of these low middle income countries are so, so variable that I imagine there's plenty where those two applications would be extremely useful um, and would be relatively easy to teach. What about kidney size? I think you alluded to that a little bit in the yeah. paper. Yeah, tell me about that. Yeah, that was really interesting to me um, because in, in Malawi, we, as you can tell by how I'm talking, I was in Malawi, Steve was in Guyana, but in Malawi, we um, really couldn't get labs very often. So um, we could, but we would send off the labs. We, they would come back like four days later um, sometimes. And so kidney size was interesting because if you thought someone had renal failure, the dialysis unit would only accept them if they were in acute renal failure. And so sometimes we would look at their kidneys and you could measure the size. And if they were really small, maybe you'd, and didn't have great corticomedullary differentiation, you may surmise that they have more chronic renal failure. Um, and so in the patients, or even not in the dialysis situation, but just a patient coming in where you're concerned that maybe they have like a renal etiology of volume overload or something like that. Um, that was a really interesting application that we actually used um, quite a bit. Interesting. What's the common cause of renal failure in, in that setting? Is it um, undiagnosed hypertension, diabetes, or? Um... We don't know. <laughs> um, I think that less, less of that and more, um, it, a lot of them were more younger people. So that there was a thought of like more autoimmune type of things, but um, I, I don't remember off the top of my head. And I remember doing a lot of PubMed searches to figure out why, but just because there's so little research into it, no one really knows. I don't think, um, Steve, do you, do you know, do you remember? Um, I don't, I don't. <laughs> um, one of the questions I had, and we, we talked about these applications and I realized a lot of listeners may not have heard of um, some of these exams. So we mentioned the FASH exam um, that for, for that's the HIV associated TB, but um, can you walk us through that exam? Um, I don't know, uh, Stephen, if, or, if you have, or Michelle, if you want to walk us through what that exam is like. It's, it's just audio only here, but um, tell us about it. Sure. So um, I guess, um, and, and Michelle, maybe you could talk about it in more detail. You guys probably did it, did it more than we did. One thing I should, I should mention too, actually, uh, about this is um, the, the study itself. And if you look at the population, 88% of the, the scans from this study were actually from Malawi, 12% were, were from Guyana. And, and actually it, it's an interesting point in terms of the, um, the settings, you know, cause Guyana was actually a, a fairly different setting, uh, a little a bit closer to um, what we would have here in terms of access to resources, but uh, you know, maybe some more time delays and these types of things. But so we actually, uh, we're not too often doing the FASH exam, um, but a lot of these other ones, you know, still apply. But yeah, maybe Michelle, if you wanted to talk about the FASH. Yeah, sure. So the FASH exam, um, I had never heard of it before I got to Malawi. And I think the thing, it's called the focused assessment for sonography in um, HIV associated tuberculosis. And the reason it's called, called that is because um, it's the goal of the FASH exam is to help diagnose extrapulmonary TB, which is incredibly hard to diagnose in general. Um, but it's really only validated and or sensitive in patients with HIV with CD4 counts below hundred. Um, be, and I'll go through some of the findings and it'll kind of become clear why Jamie, you did the, didn't you just do the FASC exam? Yeah, it, it basically this, it's all, uh, borrowing from the, from the, um, you know, the, the behemoth success of the FAST exam, you know, you, right. you, to, to do a new protocol, you want to have it start with FAS, 
Um. Yes. But I think it's similar because a lot of the findings yeah. and the FASH exam also goes off of the FAST exam. A lot of the findings are the same. And the reason that the FASH exam is only validated in um, CD4 less than 100 is because really a lot of those findings can be seen in cancers or um, cirrhosis or a lot of other things. So um, anyway, it, it, it uses the model of the FAST exam. So it looks for fluid um, in all the different places, including the heart, lungs, abdomen. Um, so it looks at all the different similar sites to the FAST exam. So right upper quadrant, left upper quadrant um, to look for both pleural effusion and fluid in Morrison's pouch fluid in the splenorenal pouch. It looks at the pelvis to look for free fluid. Um, and then it looks at the heart and the subcostal view to look for free fluid. So that's the basic principle of the FASH exam, but there are a few other components. Um, one of them is looking for splenic microabscesses, um, which is more challenging to find, but can be seen mm -hmm. with TB. The other is looking for abdominal lymphadenopathy in the same view as the pericardial effusion as the subcostal window. Mm -hmm. um, and then the third is to look for like focal hepatic lesions. And so in one of the original FASH exam papers, it was um, separated into like the basic, the FASH basic, which is just looking for fluid and then the more advanced, which includes those other things that I just mentioned. Um, and so we kind of taught ourselves it a little bit and still, um, and felt that the sensitivity was, well, yeah, we still struggled a little with some of those other more complicated things like the lymphadenopathy and the abscess. Right. And it seems like a great um, approach to screening for those problems. I mean, whether a heart failure could mimic, you know, that, that scenario or not, I think it's a, a really interesting screening tool. And you mentioned already how, you know, finding fluid with, with point of care ultrasound is so, uh, is a basic skill that can be taught even, you know, if you're not able to optimize every cardiac view, just, you know, doing a basic protocol like that could be taught to, you know, not even, not even physicians or trainees, but other, um, you know, providers on the, on the ground or uh, nurses and other users. Mm -hmm. Also, um, extra pulmonary TB just being such a difficult diagnosis to make, you know, it, yeah. I guess such utility in that sense to try to answer a question that was otherwise so difficult. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and a lot of times you're suspicious of it. And many of those places with uh, FUO, you know, they'll just treat empirically for TB. Mm -hmm. So again, you know, answered the clinical question, it didn't maybe change management, but you'd be a lot more comfortable using those drugs, which as you all know, are potentially toxic if you're seeing this abdominal adenopathy. And then in a lot of these areas, there's something, I always say I learn a lot more when I go there than I'm going to teach, but there's the lipoarabinomannan test of the urine when they have a low CD4. It's helpful to rule in disseminated uh, TB. And that's, that's often available through WHO and other places because those TB programs are there, although other basic labs may not be. But you are going to miss some. There's going to be some lymphoma. But again, uh, you're going to probably help those patients earlier and get to the diagnosis correctly earlier using the FASH exam. Absolutely. Really and, and TB treatment was in Malawi, at least was actually like an, one of the easier treatments to get, I mean, to get, they always have access to it. And so if you have a positive FASH exam in a patient with clinical suspicion, then um, it's, it's a pretty easy treatment to start. And you're right. Like sometimes we would just treat if they didn't get better then maybe it was more likely a malignancy. Um, it is ironic. A lot of times you can't get a CBC, but you can get an HIV viral load. Oh, easy. Programs. Yeah, way, way easier. Yeah. Um, speaking of getting resources, uh, curious to know, I'm sure the users are wondering a little bit about, um, you know, not it with, with no disclosures, you know, sort of what devices um, you had on the ground. I know some global health sites have, 
sort of a, a, a donated old, um, very old, like a OB type equipment that people are using? Um, did you travel with your own handhelds to these sites? Is your program supplying, you know, cart-based equipment? I'm just, just curious. Um, yeah, I think this is actually an interesting aspect of how the program developed because mm -hmm. um, we started off with, um, we have the track itself had one machine, um, which was basically usually brought to Malawi. Do you remember what, what machine that was, uh, Michelle? I don't even remember it was it was the, the very beginning. Sonosite Nano Max, the one that you can hold. Okay, yeah. Briefcase. Yeah. Okay. And yes. then, um, but that there was only one machine. You know, we have multiple sites, and, and that has challenges, especially with trying to transmit images and these types of things. Um, in Guyana, we the, the site um, had machines. The residency program there had machines that that um, you know while we were rotating that we would use as well. Um, and so that also has challenges, you know, especially in terms of integrating with QA process. But uh, a couple things. One was we ended up. Um, uh, having a butterfly uh, that we use, which was super helpful, uh, especially in terms of the QA process for transmitting the images. Um, and then two um, was actually, especially with some of the machines that we did have, trying to, to figure out a way to um, just move the images, you know, in a, in a reasonable fashion um, from like the, we had a GE venue and, and some um, GEV scans as well. And so developing the workflows to move those images. But I think that was basically the summary of the machines. Oh, and we had a Lumify, of course. I can't forget about the Lumify. Yeah. That was a really helpful machine too. Yeah, it was interesting because I think that the program, like our program evolved as um, portable devices became available. So like the first year that we did it, we had the Nanomax and literally I was taking videos of it in a really brightly lit room to try and like text via WhatsApp pictures and no one could see what we were doing because um, there was like no physical way to save the videos from the Nanomax without just taking screenshots or taking videos with your phone. And then year two, we had a Lumify and Steve had a VE scan and then year three, we had a butterfly. And so it just kind of evolved, um, but made, yeah, made it a lot easier. <laughs> for sure. Wow. And I think also uh, with this type of setup, it was very important to integrate with workflow. And in that sense, having a machine to carry with you was, was much easier than having, you know, go and find one. Uh, along these lines that, you know, I'm really so curious of all of you, you know, who do global health work and, um, you know, this, this era is really a turning point in terms of having portability and, and cheaper devices you know, that is this, is this a, you know, really important moment, um, you know, for, in terms of global health applications for focus? I mean, do you see, um, you know, have you heard from colleagues that, uh, you know, that are establishing, you know, programs like this, for, not just for trainees, but, um, you know, for um, sustainable programs on, on the ground? Is this, is this really sort of a, a breakthrough moment uh, to, to have imaging in, in, in developing countries? Like what, what's your big picture on that? I, I think it is. Um... For sure, it's it's so much. I mean, it was so much easier for us to be able to learn and get feedback on our images. I do think that the portable um, machine and Gordy, you probably have more insight into this too, since we haven't. I haven't been abroad for two years now, but I think the portable machines bring their own set of issues. So, for example, um, the butterfly, you need to have an internet connection, and we had to buy a SIM card for it, which for us was fine, but locally, um, mm. that would be a lot harder to do and to implement. Um, and to have a tablet. And the other issue with the portable devices and the Lumify was the same. So to upload them onto any kind of system, you need a SIM card because there isn't reliable Wi-Fi. This was in Malawi, but there isn't reliable Wi-Fi anywhere. Um, and so to be able to do that is challenging. And then the other big issue with the portable devices too is like, um, there's the phrase like, it will grow legs and walk away. Um, but it's just really hard to um, locally without someone owning it, like we would just carry it home with us every day, but 
But if we're thinking about trying to implement POCUS more locally without um, us there, then that is another really, really challenging aspect. Like there isn't somewhere to keep it and someone just needs to own it, but there aren't really those people. So it just brings its own set of challenges that were always kind of there. Um, but I do think yeah. it's a big turning point and it's still a big deal. I have a couple of comments on that and, <laughs> and a question. Um, yeah, I, you know, it's really helpful now with telephones and you do need at least 3G um, to do that live. There's Reacts is a platform you can use with Sonos sites and Lumifies. And then the butterfly has its live teleguidance. Did you do any live thing while you were there? Yeah. No, we, um, because we actually brought the butterfly and we're using it ourselves. And at that point I had already, it was year three. So felt pretty confident in our scanning and we're doing some direct teaching of um, local providers there, but hands-on. So yeah, we hadn't done that yet, but that would be a really cool thing to try. We do that here at the U though. We do um, like, we try and do teleguidance for some of our providers. And you even alluded to that, I think in some of your conclusions about things you might try to do in the future and that's teach some of the local docs. And it's, it's a great way to get involved with global health if you can do it through teleguidance and tele-ultrasound. Now you don't even necessarily need to travel, um, although we all love that. But the one take home I've had from that is it's really, when you go and do these teaching programs, it's really important to leave a machine um, because it's, it's very exciting for local docs to learn this. Um, but then when you go home with the machine, that's kind of uh, insulting for lack of a better term. And you know, you can, they're cheap enough now, you can do a fundraiser uh, something simple on your home front, even if you don't have a grant from your institution uh, to do that. So I hi highly recommend considering that if you're going to do some focus overseas. And and then, you know, of course, training the local docs is the gift that keeps on giving. I just got a text that some doctor was learning from someone who we had taught in Haiti. And that was the best news because you think that program is living on, you know, if these people are teaching their own local providers. And ideally that's where we want to get to, right? It's where everyone's as independent as possible. We yeah, we, and we've um, explored that quite a bit. I think part of the goal of this paper too was to like think about which applications to focus on. Um, Cause what, what I ran into in Malawi was that I wanted to teach everything and they wanted to learn everything, but then it wasn't practical um, to go there for a couple, even a couple months and teach cardiac ultrasound. So my takeaway, what I wish that I had done is taught ultrasound guided procedures. Um, I think that would have been like the low hanging fruit to teach initially is like use ultrasound because no one was doing it there because um, they didn't have one. And we have left a few ultrasound machines there as well. Um, but trying to teach like ultrasound guided procedures or just finding fluid is a really high yield thing to do um, that can make a really big difference in patient care. So that's, that was my takeaway from trying a few different things that were probably too lofty um, and what I would do in the future if I were to go back. Yeah, we definitely found um, ultrasound guided procedures to be really high yield too, because, you know, if, if someone's already doing the procedure and, and then you can just add ultrasound to it, um, you know, it's, it's high yield in terms of amount of extra practice in order to, you know, improve your care with it. Um, but, you know, an interesting thing to me too about the, the educational aspect is, you know, the challenge isn't even just teaching it, you know, it's, it's then the ongoing longitudinal mentorship, you know, and, and kind of practice-based training. And so, uh, you know, especially with global health, I think this becomes especially important, especially with people who are visiting and then going back is, you know, you can go and teach, but then, um, you know, then what about that ongoing longitudinal aspect? So I think that's one of the kind of powerful things about this type of um, kind of uh, longitudinal QA system too, is it enables that, 
uh, partnership to, you know, continue to work is it, it could work in an ongoing fashion so that even if someone's in a different continent, they can, uh, you know, provide feedback on your, on your scans. Amazing. It's really incredible to um, hear your take on all these different issues raises a lot of um, really important questions for, you know, future studies and future global health work. Um, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you to um, just to, to round out your um, take on, on the results of the study. I know our, our listeners can uh, find the um, article for free on, on pocusjournal.com, but um, in, in uh, figure four, I know you you took the, the images that were, um, you know, reviewed and, and there was some other analysis you did. I want to make sure you had a chance to just comment on um, sort of the conclusions from the study and uh, like level of agreement between reviewer and resident interpretation and um, some of those aspects. I figure four and five. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm just pulling it up so I can make sure I'm speaking correctly. But our, yeah, our real goal was to define a curriculum that can be kind of universal, knowing that there's differences in different um, low middle income countries. Um, and the way that we did this is we took, um, we looked at three different things. So we looked at um, ease of learning, like a kind of, or prevalence, I'm gonna start there. So we looked at prevalence. So which applications did we use the most? We looked at ease of learning. So um, based on literature review and what we could find, um, which exams are reliably easy to do with just a short period of training. And then we looked at our findings on impact um, on diagnosis and management. And that kind of helped us come up with, um, with a few different things that we felt would be highest yield. And so the curriculum that we've proposed um, is really just starting with finding fluid. So um, is there pericardial effusion, pleural effusion, or abdominal free fluid? And then gross LV function. So what is the qualitative left ventricular function? Is it good, bad, or terrible? Not trying to be um, you know, echo text or anything like that. Um, but we felt like starting with those two applications based on what we found is really where, um, is really high yield for any kind of global health focus curriculum. And if I were to go back and do it all again, that's where I would start. Um, plus minus DVT and hydronephrosis, like we had kind of talked about before, depending on the prevalence in the specific country. Um, but our countries didn't have particularly high prevalences of those two things. Got it. Uh, really outstanding. And I, I think um, uh, the readers are going to get a lot out of uh, sort of the analysis you have of, of these different parts of a program. But, um, you know, I wanted to just sort of round out our, our discussion here about, um, you know, seeing if you have any advice, you know, for global health programs that aren't using POCUS, like just even, you know, sort of brass tacks, um, you know, advice about how they would, uh, you know, residents who are in a global health track and in, in a U.S. program who don't have POCUS, you know, any advice for them, you know, or to, as they approach their global health faculty or administration around, you know, getting support or funding to include POCUS in their curriculum, you know, uh, advice for them or advice for the, you know, faculty who are trying to learn is in the GME setting, um, if you have any uh, input there. Um, yeah, I think um, the advice that I would have are the thoughts, I suppose. Um, would be that uh, definitely, you know, there need to be multiple ingredient, in, ingredients in place in order to start doing ultrasound, of course. Um, but, you know, it can be done in a stepwise fashion. And something that I've found, um, it, at least, um, you know, especially at, at UPMC and, and Cleveland Clinic, um, but in general, is it, kind of the role of having an educational scanning process and policy as part of the development. Because, you know, if, if you're planning to just start something, um, start a focus program, you know, we have to have credentialed um, a group of credentialed people. We have to have machines. We have to have a QA process. We have to have this. We have to have that. And there are a lot of barriers. And then it, it, you know you end up spinning your wheels and, and 
so I found that, you know, starting with building a community with um, having an opportunity for educational scanning in a safe fashion that, you know, that doesn't cause any, any trouble and, you know, there's a policy around it um, so that people can, can learn. And then eventually through that, and that, that builds momentum. Uh, of course, you have to have machines too. Um, but then with that, then those people who've been doing that become trained and then you have, then you can eventually get credentialed people and then it eventually builds on itself. And then it's a multi-year process. I think in the, in the um, at least for us with the global health track context, it was um, a little bit different because it already existed. You know, we didn't necessarily like start it. We were, we were trying to improve it. Um, but, uh, and, and I think also that the, the role of ultrasound um, was, was much more clear um, in, in, this, in the global health context, um, in the sense, especially if it's, if it's more difficult to gather imaging, then, then ultrasound can play a more obvious role. And so it becomes a little bit more pressing and, and pertinent. Um, but a lot of the other same things apply. So anyway, those would be kind of um, my thoughts on it. Michelle, uh, do you have any any advice to the to the intern in in a global health uh, program who's you know doesn't have focus and and they're looking to um, get you know faculty to to donate time or uh, you know resources or, or get get equipment for the for the application? Yeah, I think I mean similar. I echo everything Steve said, um, but I think. And I feel like a broken record a little, but I think um, just thinking about the low hanging fruits. So not trying to overdo it a little, but really just thinking about like, what can I practically do as an intern? Most interns probably will at least know how to look for fluid. So, so just like think about the low hanging fruit. What can I do if you got one butterfly and were able to try and look for fluid? that would probably make a huge impact wherever you were going. And I think that's something that can easily be done. Um, I would also harness the power of social media a little bit, um, potentially to try and network um, with other um, providers. I, I've met so many different POCUS people on Twitter, um, for sure. Steve and I have definitely had a good Twitter experience with POCUS. Um, and so I think trying to network that way, um, I guess speaking as a POCUS faculty who um, <laughs> doesn't have, a ton of time to review images. I still feel like reviewing images from global health would be super duper fun. And I'd be really excited to do that um, for anyone. So I think a lot of people with like a passion for global health would be happy to network and figure out a cool way to help out interns. Right. Even those faculty that aren't able to travel, um, you know, yeah. can still participate in the, in the image review. And I think that your study highlights how significant that, you know, role can be that, that mm -hmm. reviewing, you know, now with, with image, um, QA, you know, transmitted whether it's real time or after that, after returning to the U.S., that they can really play an important role in education and and you know continuing to educate learners about their scans by by reviewing images, um, which I think is is a really really neat point you guys make so clearly. Yeah, and I think just also acknowledging that there's so many resources out there to a lot of us are kind of self-taught a little bit in Pocus, and there's so many YouTube stuff. There there's so much via like SHM and ACP that offer um, kind of not, maybe not free, but educational content. Um, so I encourage that as well. <laughs> Outstanding. Well, um, it's been such an um, amazing, um, you know, almost hour to, to get to chat with you all. Um, I know Gordy is going to have some, some closing remarks. Um, it's, it's really so neat to share this, uh, this opportunity to chat with you, but also highlight how, um, you know, significant your, I mean, the time that you put into designing this study and getting the IRB approved and collecting the data and reviewing the images, I mean, it's it's a uh, Herculean effort and it, it's so important uh, to have out there in, in both for global health and for 
uh, internal medicine uh, focused. It's it's really commendable, and and uh, we're really privileged at Focus Journal to have the chance to um, you know uh, be a platform for your article, and uh, it's, it's really an honor. And thank you both so much for you know you're putting the time in here and and training uh, you know the next generation of of Focus uh, users in global health. Um, but without, I won't close it out just yet. I'll see uh, Courtney, I'm sure has some, some closing remarks or questions. Yeah, well, first of all, I wanna say congratulations. I really do think this is a great paper. It's okay. changed my business. I've buy, I have borrowed your find the fluid mantra. I think it's wonderful. <laughs> and uh, we talk a lot about elevator speeches and I would just say, if you're talking to your um, administration to start a program like this, you know, it's, it's now affordable. All the competition between the companies is great. It's making the technology better. It's bringing the prices down rapidly. Please. Provider patient satisfaction, patient safety. And like Jamie said, it allows all of your residents, trainees, or even your faculty to get involved, um, local partners, uh, with the image interpretation. When it's done live, it's very exciting. We had a case we did in Haiti live and made the diagnosis. We're going to do a grand rounds in Norway and, and in Ghana in June. So it's really a lot of fun, but congratulations to your whole team. Thank you guys so much. Guys. It's Thank been really so fun much. revisiting it. Wonderful. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, because this was definitely a you know meaningful aspect for us of, of our time in Pittsburgh and, and with Global Health Track. And, and so, yeah, it was nice to be able to, to chat about it. So uh, appreciative to be, to be a part of this. Um, Thanks again for joining. Of course. I, I do have one question you know, for, for Gordy, perhaps, is just, um, what, what, what would you see as kind of, um, I don't know, maybe the next direction or next steps for this area of research, you know, in, in the field as a whole, global health and, and focus education and this overlap? That's a great question, Stephen. What I've found from most of our training is we'll get people really excited, like the week that you do before people went, or maybe mm -hmm. even when they're there. But the problem is you, you come out of those situations and you'll talk to people six months later. And in my experience, about 20% of people are still scanning. So the challenge is to keep those people involved. And I think it's really an ongoing program, again, where ideally, if, if you would have left a, um, a device behind and then had a regular check-in, like you said, bring it out to train some of the local providers. And then just with expectation, we'll be checking in every three months for a morning report you know, from Malawi and hear some cases and just keep them scanning. You know, Like we say, you can... You can teach a person to ski, but the only way to learn is to go down the hill and you got to go down a lot of hills before you get it, right? And if you don't ski for 10 years, you're not going to be very good. And I think it's ultrasound. Right. I, I think, you know, the interesting point that brings up too is the relationship building aspect of this and, and what makes it, you know, pretty interesting and, and fun is, and I, you know, as we go again, you know, people and, and then hopefully maintaining that relationship and, you know, being able to um, support focus development in an ongoing fashion, like you mentioned. And, you know, I know um, we're definitely a, a very appreciative of, of our partners um, at these sites, you know, who welcomed us there. And, um, you know, like you said, uh, the ability of this to have a, you know, form a continuing uh, impact is uh, one, of the, one of the potential benefits of it, I think, from our perspective, too. Awesome. Excellent. So great to, to meet you all. We have to uh, close out, but um, really appreciate your taking the time to, um, you know, to join us on this call, but also um, on, on putting so much effort into this important work. Congratulations again. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so Great much again. With you guys.